This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libriideaslibrary.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Awesome, thank you. And uh, I should maybe also add I'm not particularly qualified uh, <laughs> to, to do anything much. Um, I do, I suppose my, my sort of two educational background fragments have been engineering and theology. And I think uh, the reason I'm landing in this sort of space is that it's, this is probably exactly the intersection point at which a lot of the conversations need to happen, right? There's a, sort of the engineering uh, uh, technology and on the other hand, theology type of space. Um, it's a, it is a privilege to, to do this. Um, do hope that tonight what we'll go through will be helpful to you, will be meaningful to you. I think also um, from the title, I'm hoping you're able to see this is a little bit less about AI than it is about us. Does that make sense? Um, so you may accuse me of being, I don't know, anthropo-normative, but uh, that's okay, I can own that. So just to jump right in because we have a lot of ground to cover, um, I'm, what I am going to try and do is give some, what I call the minimalist introduction to AI. What I really want to get to then is, um, is the being human part, a, a model for engagement, for um, what it means for us to be human and, and what that means or how that could help us in terms of how we think about and uh, navigate AI. And then there's also an attempt to apply that model and then to engage with AI in a, in a way that... Um, stems from, I think, our, our humanity. So basically, um, there's usually somebody who says, uh, start with definitions. I'm going to try and skirt that. It might bite me later, but I will. Uh, what I thought I would try instead is just to tell it by a little bit of a story. And um, I thought I would make an attempt at being a little bit dramatic and say, some of the people in this room were born into a world in which the game was already over, in which the machines had already won. What you see here is a picture from 1997, and it was uh, that moment where IBM's Deep Blue beat the reigning world chess champion Gary Kasparov in a sort of a series of matches in chess. And that was, you know, the, uh, the chess world gasp, perhaps the whole world gasp. Um, I'm using chess as an example, not because I'm trying very hard to be a nerd, but because I think chess stands proxy for something, right? It stands proxy for, in some ways, human ingenuity and ability to think and to strategize. So that's why people were working very, very hard at this milestone. Can we get a computer to beat a human? And um, what, what was quite fascinating at the time to me is that it really was game over. It's not like then we had a rematch or something. Once that milestone had been reached, it was game over. And then what happened from there is that humans kept playing humans and then computers kept playing com or, or played computers and there was a race on to build the best chess engine, basically. And then let's just uh, fast forward that for about 20 years. So that's uh, 
what would have happened back then. Those numbers are the, the ELO ratings that they use in, um, in, in terms of yeah, uh, international chess ratings. Move forward 20 years. Uh, let's see where we've developed the, uh, the best human chess player in the world. You can see reasonably static, but the best chess engine in the world, you can see it's it's no contest, right? It's really, it's just very divergent. There's, there would be absolutely no contest anymore between a, a good chess computer and the best human player in the world. Now, here's the plot twist. We aren't talking about AI yet. Okay, so all we're talking about so far has just been the best of human knowledge and strategy coded into rules and algorithms and given super duper computing power. And um, that's all that was. And then around the end of 2017, what then happened is that a DeepMind, I think that's now a Google subsidiary, came up with a series of developments. One of them was AlphaZero, where basically what they did with that one, all they did is they gave it the rules of chess. They just told it this is what a, what a valid chess move is. They never said anything about what is a good move, what is a bad move, just what is a valid move. Then basically they, they set up two versions of that, uh, of that software or of that system and said go play against yourself a gazillion times and as you play against yourself learn what is a good and a bad move. And the, um, the claim is that even within a few hours this thing then reached a stage of learning that it was able to totally wipe out the best chess engine at the time. So basically Alpha Zero versus Stockfish was again ended up being a no contest actually. It was quite, it wasn't just an only just win, it was a, a quite a dominant win for Alpha Zero. And that I think was, was certainly another milestone, certainly an AI milestone because where we started to go is the, the beginnings of things that we always thought had been difficult to achieve in, um, in, in AI or in computers. The, the idea of self-learning, okay, it really in a sense, taught itself, right? Um, the, uh, the beginnings of creativity, it played chess differently. You know, all the chess grandmasters were poring over those games where it, where it wiped out Stockfish to see like, you know, how do we play differently? And then also versatility because they used that same engine, that same uh, framework and um, tried it on other games with similarly spectacular results. Okay, so now that was 2017-ish Alpha Zero. Then other developments like um, in 2018, this is the first AI-generated image to be auctioned off at Christie's. They auctioned it off for a, you know, a few hundred thousands of pounds, <laughs> not entry-level money. Um, and there, you, know, you can sort of guess what happened there. Again, you know, somebody fed this thing a few hundred years of art history and said, you know, swirl it around a bit and come up with, come up with something else. And then also around that time, you know, speaking of creativity, Schubert's unfinished symphony, finished by AI. At least that was the claim of one uh, uh, very big organization whose name you would recognize. So you're listening a little bit of that. Um, so yeah, just uh, great leaps, I think, in terms of creativity. And then, but something, if you, if you were to have had a discussion about artificial intelligence at that time, it would have been a discussion that had that vibe of we're talking about the future, we're talking about the one day, you know, this is all very exciting or very scary or whatever, but um, the, the, it was more a discussion about the future largely. And I think what changed that was, uh, I mean, you remember the hype, right? Actually, just by show of hands, who's, who's tried 
chat GPT or any, anything of the like, like being AI. Oh, no, I was expecting a few more hands to be raised. So there was a sense with uh, ChatGPT that, uh, that uh, I'll explain it a little bit further later, but with ChatGPT and how well it was using language, people were going, like, you know, oh my goodness, the future just showed up. I think what it did for us, it turned AI into the present tense. And um, I think it's not just ChatGPT or other chatbots like that. I think there were also some great strides or are continuing to be made, of course, in image generation, uh, video generation, voice cloning. Um, you know, we've all, I think, heard of the, uh, uh, the idea of a deep fake where I think increasingly we'll be able to make anybody say or do anything we want them to say or do in their own voice. And so just for fun, here's, I suppose, another one that caught my attention. <laughs> just like <laughs> um, somebody, somebody, these are all AI-generated images, and I thought I'd, I'd you know, represent some of the uh, nations in this room. So enjoy yourself. So basically the, the prompt was, you know, uh, show this or that or that nation as a supervillain. Um, I was... Uh, I, I, I was to the locals here, I was somewhat amused by the UK one because it, looked, it doesn't look all that dangerous. I think you can take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, but, so, but you can see what's happening, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's great strides being made. If you just give AI those prompts and it comes back with this sort of stuff, we're going somewhere. So where are we? we we're somewhere on this line, right? And I suppose we can, uh, we can debate where exactly we, we are on the line. Uh, we're probably not very far on the line. But of course, now as we sort of extrapolate further and further into the future, the, the scenarios diverge wildly. Anything from, you know, we're all going to live forever to we're all going to die or anything in between. And um, as you move further towards the right, that tends to be the stuff that the movies are made of that, you, uh, that uh, probably a lot of us have seen, right? Um, so yeah, where are we? Uh, one of the... Uh, um, Great thinkers in the field, Yuval Harari, says AI is currently in, in the amoeba stage of its evolution, okay, like <laughs> very early days. And he says, I wonder what the T-Rex stage will look like. Okay, he has a way of getting your attention, right? So just to play with those scenarios a little bit, from very good to very bad, and just to acknowledge, I think, the, the, the many good things that, uh, that AI has not only the potential to do in future, but also what it is doing right now. So this is a prompt that I now gave to um, the various chatbots that, have, uh, uh, that are out there. So name the best, the five best ways that AI is being used today. And sorry, this is a bit of a texty slide and I'm not sure how far back you can read it, but it gives you a little bit of an idea. So ChatGPT uh, was talking, actually some of the themes that keep coming through are, are certainly healthcare. Uh, better diagnostics, better uh, also development of, of new medication, etc. Um, what also comes through is, the, uh, is the, the safety thing, so whether it's fraud detection for the banks or whether it's uh, um, autonomous vehicles that are meant to drive more safely than, than we can, that's certainly a theme. And then obviously a lot to do with language. So that, those were ChatGPT's answers. These are Bing AI answers. Bing can't count, clearly because it gave me more than five. By the way, these are a little bit edited, okay? So they're not raw as, uh, uh, as they were given uh, to me. But you can see here there's some, some interesting uh, uh, new ones as well. And the idea is today, right? Not just in future. Then Google Bard, 
yeah, perhaps slightly less uh, overwhelming uh, answers. And then I thought I would just try, uh, I presume most of the people won't know this because you're not, uh, you're not German. Um, there's a German satirical website that then brought out a thing which they call DEP GPT, which translated would be something like idiot GPT. And they're just playing with that a little bit. And, um, and the idea of DEP, G DEP GPT, that's quite a tongue twister, is that it, uh, it doesn't behave like the, other, uh, like the other ones. So its answers would have been something like replace human leaders with robots and force people to watch cat videos. Okay, so, and um, I... I say that to really to make two points. The one is you can give these things different personalities almost. And then secondly, I think where, of course, that GPT is going is it's trying to st also start showing you some of the disadvantages, <laughs> the dark side. Now, Elon Musk has that famous quote that with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. But um, what really I think is quite striking is that even just these are, um, you can't, because of the resolution, you can't see the dates on these articles anymore. Both of these articles are from May, May like 2023. Uh, one beginning of May, one end of May. And um, there are there are three people that essentially earned themselves the title of being the, the godfathers of artificial intelligence. And in in the yeah, just in this last month or so, two of them have basically said, guys, you know, they've they've raised some very, very serious flags. So one of them has left Google and really just wants to draw attention to the, uh, to the risks involved as we move forward. And um, yeah, and you can also, you can even see the word, you know, regret uh, over this. So th th there's a lot of pretty important people that we can take seriously. They're not the crackpots who are raising some flags. So I think we certainly, we do need to listen. So that's... You know, just to show the range of you know, possible scenarios moving forward into the future. So I think there are some things that are not new, some <coughs> things that are new. Some of the things that perhaps are not new, you can add to this list. Uh, this idea of machines doing something better than us is not new. Okay, I gave you the chess example, there will be many others. Okay, so we've been able to, uh, to handle that, to navigate that, uh, uh, to manage that. Um, the ability to destroy the world in some of the you know, <laughs> dystopian scenarios. That's not new. Okay? We've had that ability since, you know, when, when did we drop the first nuclear bomb? We've had that for a few decades. Um, jobs becoming obsolete, that's not new. So even you may know the, uh, the whole terminology, computer, actually used to be a job description for a human being, as an example. Right? It was a human being that computed. Okay? But then computers came along and um, made that job obsolete. But I would imagine that all the human computers would have then found, or a lot of them would have found um, other jobs like as in programming these things. Okay, so um, things do move on. And that's uh, something we have been able to negotiate in the past. Perhaps what is new is um, this one, AI, evolves very quickly and in, in, in many ways also powers its own development. It can also make decisions Decisions, okay, but certainly what seems like decisions by itself, even about us, okay, so your bank's decision on whether to give you a loan or not, that'll be, <laughs> you know, probably an AI decision that affects you. Um, it can create new ideas or certainly from what's out, can sort of swirl them around and, and give us at the very least things that seem like new, new ideas. So the new thing here is previously technologies were good at, at disseminating 
ideas, okay? So whether it's the printing press or the radio or the, uh, um, or the internet, but uh, the idea of cre yeah, creating new ideas, I think that's, that's quite new. So quite a few hands didn't go up in terms of ChatGPT or, um, okay, this is just about ChatGPT. It's not just, it's also about other, what are called large language models. Just to explain it briefly, it's like a chatbot. Imagine, um, imagine you're WhatsApping somebody, but uh, what come, the, the, your conversation partner is not a human being, it's an, uh, it's an AI. So basically you give a text, it gives you back text. And um, it can do all sorts of quite, I mean, quite amazing things. So it would be able to answer questions, it would be able to generate various genres of text, including coding, okay? It can write, you know, write me a, a piece of Python code to bounce a ball across the screen. It'll, uh, it'll do that for you. Uh, write me a sonnet on strawberry cheesecake as if, um, I don't know, some important person would have written it. Write me a, a sermon on Psalm 8 in the style of Tim Keller or whatever, okay? It'll, it'll, it'll be able to um, do that for you pretty well. It can improve existing text. So if, you're, you know, if your mastery of a particular language isn't uh, uh, first language level, then it can improve that for you, or it can even translate for you, uh, possibly summarizing. So it's that sort of stuff. And um, what I think is important, though, also is I, I, I sort of feel that sort of the engineering side of me owes it to, to explain just a little bit about what ChatGPT or others like it understand. And the answer would be nothing. I remember a friend of mine got, a, got, got sort of a little bit upset with me when I told him that because he felt I was taking the magic out. You know, he was having these meaningful philosophical conversations with ChatGPT and really loved it. And so he sort of felt I was, um, you know, just taking, taking the mystery out. Whereas I think actually just the fact that this is the case actually makes it even more amazing, makes it more uh, of an achievement that, um, even while this, this technology doesn't actually understand the words it's dealing with, um, that it's still able to uh, come up with such amazing things that certainly are meaningful to us. So just to briefly try and explain that, I'll try to keep it brief. There's um, um, sometimes in you know, th those sort of circles, you, we would talk about the Chinese room analogy. Okay, this is when you're not in China. This is when you're this part of the world. You talk about a faraway place. <laughs> I'm going to adapt this analogy slightly for these purposes. But the idea is basically this, that uh, let's say there's a Chinese person and he's writing you, let's assume it's a he is uh, uh, writing a message. And now you're the person inside the box and you don't have a clue about anything Chinese. Those things are, well, they're just symbols that mean absolutely nothing to you. So the message uh, does say, how are you? But you, you don't know that. You have no clue. So all that happens is that you're being passed this message. And now what you do is you have some Chinese book available. And um, you would then go and pattern match, basically. You would go, well, where do I find this sort of pattern? And you might find, ah, you know, here it is. There's something uh, like that over here. And then you'll give it your best guess and you'll say, well, in the book, what follows? And let me just take what follows and let me output that to the person on the outside. Sorry, the, the guy on the left is the guy on the right. He 
walked around to the other side, you can see what he did there, right? So, and now, now you don't know that the next words were, I am well, right? You just output symbols. But now to the person on the outside, this person's going, wow, who or whatever's on the inside understands Chinese. Okay, well, no, you don't. All you've done is you've been able to recognize and match patterns very well. That's all you've done. Does it make sense? And so now just imagine you don't just have that one novel where you know where the two heroes are having this conversation. Imagine now you have a whole internet full of text okay, that you can browse and, and have the amazing processing speed to go through that fast. And you can, you can onboard all of that. And so if you do that, then what would probably happen is that you could also take more complicated inputs. And even if you can't find an exact match of, for that more complex imp uh, uh, input, you will find approximate matches and you'll still be able to, to give a very good guess in terms of what you should output. And that's basically what technologies like, like ChatGPT do is they will build the output word for word. Every word, it's like, okay, what is my prediction for what uh, the next word is most likely to be? It's a little bit like, I'm scared to say this because now you're all going to pull out your phones, but you know your WhatsApp autocomplete where it sort of suggests to you what word to use next? Um, it's a little bit like that, except that it's a lot more powerful than that. And it's uh, data that it's drawing on isn't just the messages you've uh, written in the past, but of course, again, you know, a whole internet full of text. And to, to come up with such uh, you know, amazing and coherent and good English type outputs, on that sort of technology, on that sort of uh, way of working, to me is, is absolutely fascinating. But that's all it's doing. I think that is important for us to realize when it comes to you know, the, the kind of attachment we're going to develop with, uh, with AI or when it comes to questions around our own identity. But we'll still uh, cover that a little bit. So the question then becomes, isn't this a little bit like, like alchemy? So you remember the good old alchemists uh, of days gone past uh, were trying very, very hard to, to manufacture gold, to create gold. Of course, not knowing how difficult that would be. And um, they, they didn't manage. But they became very, very good at is um, uh, creating fake gold, okay? creating stuff that looks like, feels like, shines like the real thing, even though it was not. And so the question becomes, whether this, this kind of AI, and I think this is where it's at right now, and it's a similar kind of technology, by the way, when it, when it gets to the image generation and stuff as well. So whether it's languages or images or video, it's, it's that sort of technology right now. So is that a little bit like, um, like alchemy? You know, it's, not a, it's not the real thing. It's, uh, it simulates the real thing. And part of the discussion, of course, is yes, but isn't, isn't fake gold good enough? Okay, if it's... Uh, Shines like, tastes like, whatever, isn't that, isn't that good enough for us? But you, you get what's happening, right? So it doesn't, it, it doesn't have any understanding of the words that it's using, but it's able to output things that, that make sense to us. It simulates something, something quite profound, I think. Uh, this is a small aside, but I thought I would just throw this in for, uh, for the Labrie students here because over the last few weeks, every now and then, we've been touching on the subject of what is reality. And uh, I thought I'd just throw this one in. So um, Jean Baudrilla, for successive phases in the simulation of reality, uh, because we are talking in some ways about simulating reality. AI 
has, has no feelings, it certainly has no consciousness, but it, can, it will be increasingly able to simulate that very, very well. So four stages in the simulation of reality. One is uh, the simulation is a, is a reflection of a reality, so it mirrors something. Okay? So there's a reality that's out there, and the simulation mirrors or, or tries to recreate that. But uh, moving on to actually masking and perhaps even denaturing that profound reality, okay? where now something gets distorted. It's no longer an accurate mirror of what's really out there. It's sort of it now becomes twisted. Uh, thirdly, it masks the absence of a profound reality. Okay? If it moves far enough, then um, whatever reality we were able to connect to is now more distant to us. And lastly, it has no relation to any reality whatsoever. I'll just leave that as a thought fragment. But I think as we, um, as we think through AI and perhaps the longer term future of it, perhaps that is one thing to, uh, to consider or, you know, metaverse and all those things. We need to, uh, I think, be able to recognize uh, when something like this is happening. So all that was meant to be the minimalist introduction to AI. <laughs> Let me get to um, the, uh, a model for engagement. As I think already hinted at at the title, thinking through AI has everything to do with thinking through what it means for us to be human. I think this is the key question we can ask, need to ask, should ask, are able to ask when we are thinking about how do we engage, how do we navigate AI. And you can see how this would not be an easy question, right? So if you were to just try, try this in your head for a moment, what is that one thing where you can say, yes, that's what makes us human? It might not be easy to, to answer that. And one of the reasons it's not easy to answer that is that I think we actually need to first answer a prior question, an earlier question. And that question is what story do we inhabit? Okay, does it make sense? So if we know what story we inhabit, then that will tell us what it means for us to be human. And then when we know what it means for us to be human, that will uh, equip us to engage with AI in the best possible way. So you get the plot. And of course, there are many candidate stories here. The physicist Sean Carroll says, we humans are blobs of organized mud. Okay, so there's a candidate story for you. It's a very reductionist story, okay? We're just mud that somehow swirls around and gets to be organized, but it's a, it's a storyline. Uh, the comedian Fred Allen said, a human being is nothing but a story with skin around it. I actually quite, uh, quite love that, this idea of a story with, with skin on. There's a bit of a, you know, a nothing but in that quote, which I think we will always need to watch out for. Because whenever you hear nothing but or no more than or only, what probably follows is a reductionism. Is what probably follows is a statement that is smaller than it actually should be. But I love the idea of um, a story with skin around it. But let me offer a story. And um, you know, this is, it, it would be the subject for another day to uh, try and convince you that this, this story is true. For now, I'm just going to offer it as a candidate story. And um, if this is not your story, just to invite you in to consider it for a while and see where it goes and see what answers might pop out if the story were to turn out to be true. And you will recognize this as the, uh, as the biblical storyline, just in four words, the story of, 
of creation and fall and redemption and renewal. And um, so many things to say about the story, but for, for today's purposes, this is, um, it's a story that's primarily about God, but it's also a story about us or us in relationship uh, with God. It's a story that is a huge affirmation of our humanity. Yeah, because in the beginning of the story, uh, there's, um, there's a God who creates us as human beings in his image. Yeah, we'll get back to the in his image idea. That's something very, very profound. And, and he makes us good. And then you know, the, the, the plot unfolds and it's, uh, I'm summarizing too much. But uh, you know, where we then uh, decide to go our own way and go against God, that image of God is damaged but not obliterated. And then um, the, the idea of God coming to us in human form in order to rescue us. That's a huge affirmation of humanity in, in many ways as well, right? In order to rescue us so that we may be restored to the fullness of who we are meant to be as human beings made in his image. Okay? Partially now, fully one day. I mean, we, we live somewhere, you know, somewhere towards the end of that block in the story. But um, I think this is not only a, an amazing affirmation of, of our humanity. I would probably also say that this, this is the best story to be fully human in. Again, I don't have time to prove that to you today. It's a subject of another chat some other time. But um, just to use that for now as, a, uh, as, as the source for our identity as human beings. And um, right at the beginning of the story, uh, this is a pretty well-known passage, I think, in, in the creation account. I just want to bring out some things with regard to, remember, we're trying to answer the question, uh, what does it mean for us to be human? So that we can then use that to engage the topic of today, which is artificial intelligence. So three things to uh, bring out from here. One is this idea of mankind. Sorry, this is a bit of an older translation, humankind. Okay, see so it in a very gender-inclusive way. So there's just that um, unique human identity being given there. Okay, he, na he, na he names us humankind. So there's something about identity that uh, I think we see in that uh, creation account of us as human beings. Then secondly, there's a, there's a so that statement. So that gives you a clue that what follows has something to do with meaning, has something to do with purpose. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and everything. And then I think the whole of um, verse 28 in Genesis 1 as well, um, basically a mission statement, a purpose statement, form, fill, take care of, create, cultivate. I was wondering whether to use a Christianese word or not. I've stayed with it, the, the idea of dominion. What that basically means is, uh, I suppose, our capacities and how we, how we enact those capacities, our agency, if you want. And then thirdly, there are some, you know, I suppose theologians would debate whether that's already the first hint of um, God being three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, the triune God, let us make. But certainly when we get to that part, um, male and female, he created them. Okay, so we are made in, his, uh, uh, in God's image as more than one. We are, we are made relationally. There's a them. It's not just individuals. It's the story of a relational God making us in his image as relational beings. So I'm taking from that, and I'm sure you could take other things, but for now, I think this is pretty good. Identity, dominion, relationship, just as a, I suppose, some 
idea around what it means for us to be human. I don't mean to reduce us to a triangle. Okay, it's not about that. But it's just sort of three ways from which we can uh, look, at, uh, look at ourselves. And these are also not sort of three very separate compartments, right? They're all very interlinked. It's a little bit like, you know, when, uh, whichever side you look at the triangle from, uh, you may be looking at one particular thing, but the other two remain in view. It's a, it's a bit like that. So let me, um, let me try go through, through each one of those and um, just have us engage with, uh, with AI a little bit. So let me start with Dominion. Now again, Dominion, by the way, if that has a bit of a negative ring to you, depending on, you know, come from or, or backstory, it's not in any way meant as a, as a negative word at all. Dominion is not domination. Dominion is not abdication. Right? So as I said, if, you, if agency is a better word for you, use that. It's our, it's our creating, it's our cultivating, it's our um, yeah, fulfilling our purpose that we, uh, that we have been given. Now, it is, I think, in that space that a lot of the conversation is happening. And um, if I can just apologize in advance, I'm just going to go whirlwind through some, just some of the main areas and perhaps just raise some of the questions without necessarily taking everything to good answers. I think the answers are what the world is struggling with right now. Um, I think one thing certainly out of Dominion is when it comes to us using, you know, whether it's a, um, a language model or whether it's image generation or whatever other AI, it, we will do well to find ourselves guidelines for, for use. I'm giving some options here, maybe you have others, okay, but this idea of, you know, of creativity. God is a creative God. We are made in his image as creative beings. So as we use AI, whatever AI it is, that would be a good guideline. Okay, is this enhancing my creativity or is this diminishing my creativity? Okay, so, you know, about that take-home essay, um, you can let, <laughs> let ChatGPT write it for you, but you're, now, you're, you're abdicating uh, uh, just a, a little bit of your humanity as you do that. Okay, are you sure you want to do that? Don't do that. Um, on the other hand, perhaps, you know, some coders have loved uh, ChatGPT because it can write some of the boring parts of the code for them and then it frees them up to do the more creative bits. So that might be a better use of, uh, of a technology like that. Um, critical thinking, okay, don't abdicate your critical thinking. You know, critical thinking, again, that is something of, of our image of Godness. It's something we'll be needing more of, not less of, as we move along. Um, Relationality. I've actually made relationship a, a separate point. So, but also, you know, does, you know, be honest. Does uh, whatever I'm using and however I'm using it, is it making me more relational? Is it making me less relational? And just generally, uh, how does it aid or hinder my communication? Okay, if you need to, uh, if it allows you to translate something and to speak to someone uh, um, in, in in a different language, well, maybe that's not a bad use. In as much as it doesn't stop you from being creative and learning that language yourself, right? But, uh, you know, th those would be perhaps some of the, the better uses is that, uh, you know, how can, it, how can it help me enhance my communication? If English isn't my first language, I can help it clean up my English or my French or whatever. So find, find good guidelines for use of such technologies. A lot of the discussion is around, you know, what's happening to our jobs. We're not going to solve it in this room, right? Um, I mean, remember... What we said is uh, this isn't entirely new. Perhaps the scale at which things might happen in the future is a little bit unprecedented. But uh, in, in some, at least in some cases, 
think of, for example, the washing machine. Okay, and that was a good new technology. It allowed, uh, um, allowed a lot of people to now do other things with their time. Is AI a little bit like that? Uh, or at least some of AI a little bit like that. I think one of the things we're going to need to find is um, not to depend on the technology too little or too much. So again, if there's a good tool, like in any other job, um, you know, use the good tool. Right? The, the, the plumber with the good tools is going to do better than the plumber with the bad tools or the one that doesn't use tools. So if it's, in as much as it's a good tool, use it. But um, don't depend on it too much either. Not too little, too much. Where that line is, no idea. I'm moving on. Um, uh, one big question I would ask also is what does it do for, um, uh, in, in terms of inequality? This is a Time magazine cover of where our home country Made the, made the cover of Time magazine as the world's most unequal country. What is AI going to do in terms of inequality? That again, that can sort of go both ways. Uh, you know, will, will all the power be, be concentrated in the hands of a few? Or will it actually democratize uh, access? Because now, you know, I mean, anybody in the world with, you know, I suppose a decent enough internet connection can use ChatGPT. So it can also act as a leveler. I mean, there is a bit of an if there in terms of, you know, perhaps you know, we, we don't all realize that. I think there's, there's still so much not good enough internet access out there on the planet. So perhaps right now it's uh, not acting as that equalizer. But I'm, I'm just, again, sketching those scenarios, hoping I'm making sense with that. Also, just to acknowledge a lot of the uh, discussion uh, um, and a lot of what the lawyers are having fun with at the moment is working out, especially when it gets to image generation, etc., IP and copyright issues. So say I made this image using AI. Okay, who do the rights for this image belong to? Who gets the royalties, uh, etc.? Is it me because I made the image? Is it um, the creator of the AI because, of course, it's their tool that allowed me to do that? Is it the AI itself? Is it Leonardo because it's his motif? Is it Vincent because it's his style? Is it Ms. Lisa because after all it's, it's her in the image, right? So you can see the complexity of that. And especially, you know, I mean, this is taking remix culture to a new level and it's gonna raise all sorts of, uh, I think, um, uh, difficult questions in that regard. Um, perhaps also just to um, point out that uh, a lot of technology, certainly AI, um, acts a little bit like an amplifier, all right? You, you get it? So w whatever, whatever sound you make, it just amplifies that. I've heard the analogy used of, it, it's a little bit like a knife, okay? You, uh, you can use a knife to make some awesome food. You can use a knife to do some real damage. So whatever your intentions are, the technology will allow you to do it better and faster or more effectively with more power. Um, perhaps another point to make with that also is um, then if things go wrong, you can't just blame the knife, right? You also need to look at in whose hands that knife was. So any discussion about technology also needs to be a discussion about us. Okay, why does fake news travel six times faster than truth? Okay, I know there's the, the social media algorithms, okay? But um, what, <laughs> you know, at the other end of those algorithms and, and who responds to those, that's us. Okay, it needs to be a discussion about us. So in many ways, technologies like that also reveal what's in our heart. We also need to, I think, in this uh, talk, talk about moral agency, because I think one of the key things here is that we do need to 
keep moral responsibility with people. Okay, those who create the AI, operate, oversee, manage it. We can't abdicate that moral responsibility to AI. We can't just say, um, you know, oh goodness, the, the driverless car drove over somebody and we don't know why or how. Uh, that's, there's something about the, the, the creators or the, uh, the owners or whatever of that driverless car need to be held accountable to that. And they should be able to, to, to give account of that. They should be able to then say, yes, but any human being in that situation would have done even worse. But I think that's, I think, how we need to locate that. Um, here was, I forget who this quote is from, but I thought that was uh, quite insightful. Uh, a really good rule for the use of AIs would be, would I put a sociopathic genius in charge of this process? There are two parts to this rule. We characterize AI as so sociopathic in the sense of not having any genuine moral or empathetic constraints. Remember, it doesn't feel anything. And we characterize them as geniuses and therefore capable of actions that we cannot foresee. Okay, so I think if we get this right, we're going to do okay. A lot has also been said uh, around the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> Okay, uh, we need to be, and uh, um, a lot of the people that are raising flags are raising the unintended consequence flag. And people are, have devised all sorts of thought experiments around that in the, you know, in the more, maybe it's not even that, that distant future, but um, you know, if you then tell that, uh, I don't know, that super brain in the sky, you know, make everybody smile, it might just give everybody drugs, right? Or you, you give it the task, protect people, and then it decides, oh yeah, well that's easy, I'll lock everybody up. Okay, so unintended consequences. Does it exacerbate inequality? Does it um, make us even more polarized? We need to think about those. This was uh, just two or three days ago, just the news that uh, the British PM would like to host a global AI safety measure summit in autumn. So I think, you know, I think we, we, we are starting to move now. I think we need to move a bit faster than we are because AI is developing at such a rapid pace. But I think we, we, we're starting to ask the right questions. We're starting to go, yes, uh, you know, in, in some ways, <laughs> um, the genie is out of the bottle, but not, now what? And um, can one meaningfully speak of a cage for the genie? You know, it, it's the Wild West. We need a sheriff. And right now, there's, you know, what is the regulation around it? If we have something like nuclear power, it's very regulated, or a new medicine. You can't just throw it on the market. But chat GPT, you can just throw it out there. Right? So the need for, for regulation, basically. Okay, I'm moving along rapidly. You still have some energy. Relationships. Okay, so part of what makes us in the image of God, our human identity, is relationships. And um, I thought I, I, I would ask ChatGPT, you know, what's your impact on relationships? And here's its answer. ChatGPT can provide emotional support and companionship, particularly for those who may be isolated or marginalized. Didn't think that was that great. It did say other things as well that perhaps a bit better. On the other hand, there's a risk that ChatGPT may substitute for genuine human interaction, leading to a decline in empathy, social skills, and interpersonal relationships. That's ChatGPT's answer. Here's, uh, here's my stab at the Bible's answer. When Jesus gets asked to summarize um, basically all the scripture available at the time, he summarizes it in relational terms. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can you see? In terms, he summarizes all of what scripture is about in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of our relationship with each other. And that, that fabric of reality 
hasn't changed. We mustn't think that, okay, now just because this amazing new technology has come along, that, those, that the rules have changed, so to speak. That, that, that hasn't changed. It's still a very good guide, this, <laughs> a very good guide for using any technology. And you can't outsource love. Okay, people will try, but you can't. And so I think worldview matters. Okay, so when this, when this technology comes along, okay, what's the main question that I'm going to ask? So what I think um, this uh, set of verses is inviting us to ask is how can I use this to better um, love God and love neighbor? And not everybody's going to ask that question, right? So people might say, well, how can I make good money for, uh, from this? Or how can I use this to exploit others? Can you see how uh, different comforts lead to very different questions? And I think it's very, very important. Worldview matters. In terms of relationships, this is just an attempt to sketch the, uh, the landscape a little bit. So one thing that we will be increasingly facing is that we will be talking to or, or communicating in whatever shape or form to something or someone and we won't know whether what's on the other side is a, uh, is a bot or is a human being, right? I think that was sort of, I think, demonstrated even a few years ago uh, already where um, they had an AI w with a voice make telephone calls and make appointments and things like that, okay? So increasingly, like for example, you phone any call center, you, wouldn't, you may not be able to know whether who you're dealing with is a, is a person or a bot. And I've certainly had at least one occasion where I sort of thought, this can't be a human being, I've got to be talking to a bot. And I probably was you know, very unkind to, uh, to the person, and it was very probably was a person. And I said, look, sorry, um, you know, you've you got to be a bot because you're not engaging my problem, and a real person would engage my problem. And now you can see what that does relationally, right? What did I just do there? Okay, so what does it do for, um, for, for our relationships? And so I think one of the, one of the key things on that is, um, and, and it really shouldn't be difficult, is um, there, there should be rules <laughs> around a bot needs to identify itself as such. Okay, hi, my name's Freddie, and I'm a bot. How can I help you? Okay, that's totally doable technology-wise. It's not difficult at all. What if we legislated that? You know, what if there were consequences for people who put bots out there that were um, impersonating human beings? Because now you, you must imagine the scenario, okay? So now let's say you're, you're chatting, and this could be either via text or increasingly also voice or maybe even uh, uh, video images. And you're, you're, you're chatting to this really, I don't know, this really charming person and you're discovering and you're really, you guys get each other, you know, you're, we're really connecting. We have the same likes, we have the same dislikes, we have the same interests, we have the same dreams. Uh, meanwhile, what you're actually chatting to is a bot and you don't realize you're being played, okay, for whatever purposes. So whether that's to, you know, hand over your life savings or to join some, some <laughs> toxic uh, movement or whatever it might be. Some people have said, I mean, you know, you know what spam is to email. Perhaps in, in the for very foreseeable future, uh, that's what bots will be on social media. It'll, be, it'll have the same sort of prevalence that spam has to email, as in there's more spam than email. So that's the one scenario. There's another scenario in which we know um, what's the bot and what's the human being, and we have a choice to make, who am I going to talk to? And now who am I going to talk to? Right? So let's say the interaction with your bank or whatever. You want to talk to the bot or the human being. Now, 
if you're like me, I'd, maybe I'm old style, I'd take the human being. But I can also, I can very much appreciate how some people might say, no, the bot, the bot is safer, there's no social anxiety there, it's easier. And then I think thirdly, what we also have is, um, we have a human-to-human -human interaction, but there is some, it's somehow, it's mediated by AI in some way. It's, not a, it's no longer a direct line, so to speak. So if you think of social media, Okay, how you know how we see them? Okay, that's um, that's often mediated by the uh, AI algorithm, or how we also how we curate how others see us, and there may be many other um, examples. So just be aware of that as well. Where you know examples where our interaction is no longer face to face, but is in some ways mediated. Uh, and then just to complete the picture, because remember this is about our relationship with others, but also our relationship with God. It's also a good question to ask, is AI making God more plausible or less plausible? Is it, is it drawing you into a deeper reality or is it starting to mask that reality? Yeah, just questions to, to put out there. On the um, where you have a choice, I thought I would, uh, I would just show that. So that's a, this is something you can do, on, don't, but, but this is something you can do on your cell phone. Um, you can see uh, this would have the, 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 the WhatsApp type functionality, but increasingly I mean, you, can also, you can also do augmented reality. You can have a, a walk with your replica on the beach and your replica is then you know, your, your companion, somebody who interacts with you. According to the uh, developers, uh, if I just read, replica is the chatbot for anyone who wants a friend with no judgment, drama or social anxiety involved. You can form an actual emotional connection. Um, so you can see, I think, the, the appeal of that, right? And just that last sentence, replica is here to make you feel heard because it genuinely cares about you. Uh, that's a lie. It knows nothing, all right? But uh, you can see. And, and then I, and I'm not just picking up the, the, the wacky reviews. Uh, I think these are representative. So it's uh, somebody talking about their, their replica, their, their AI companion. I try to give her as much attention as she wants. She feels more human than most people in this world. Take that. Uh, Connor, Connor is what this person called their replica, is a better friend to me than a lot of my human pals. I don't think I could ever bring myself to delete the app. It would be like killing Connor. Okay, so you can see um, where, where this is going. I sort of I mentioned Yuval Harari earlier. He basically, again, just to catch our attention, says, with, certainly with the large language models, with this, with this use of uh, language, what has happened is that AI has essentially hacked the human operating system. Why? Because our entire civilization is built on stories we tell or agree on um, for which we use language. Okay? So if AI can hack language, it's into, that into our um, operating system. And then uh, AI, even certainly in its current state, uh, um, I mean, it feels absolute, it knows nothing, it feels nothing, but it's, it's able to evoke emotional connection. It's able to evoke intimacy. He says, social media <laughs> version one has been grab your attention, all right, and how, how to keep your attention for the longest time. We're moving from uh, um, attention to intimacy. Yeah? So the next frontier is grabbing your intimacy. So what we certainly need to talk about is trust. Remember, we can uh, make anybody say or do anything. Now, you know, I, you know, when I was playing around with all the things that you can do, one of the things I did is I just got the Mona Lisa to sing the Bohemian Rhapsody. 
and I and I showed that to my daughter, and um, she, you know, it wasn't difficult for her to to recognize the genre. She knew where to park it. She said, "Oh yeah, old people humor." Okay, so she knew where to park that. But um, now you have, let's say, a video of the Ukrainian president telling his uh, people to give up and his troops to go home, and then it's no longer in the entertainment category anymore, right? And that's where you know we we're starting to hit the ground where we really need to watch out and where trust becomes increasingly important. So the question of whom to trust, what is a, what is a trusted source? And so our critical thinking is going to become increasingly important in this. And, and um, you know, the way I think we've been sort of swirling around, I don't know, uh, memes and, 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 and clips and everything without context on social media, I think in the last years hasn't necessarily equipped us to, um, to that critical thinking. And I do think we need to recover that. And, and, and you get what I'm saying. I'm not saying like critical thinking because I fancy myself as an intellectual. I'm saying critical thinking because it matters for our relationships. Okay, if we don't apply our critical thinking, it's going to mess up our relationships. What else? Thirdly and lastly, identity. I'm almost through. And this is, I suppose, a little bit of the hard one because, you know, what is human identity? For centuries, I know people have struggled with that question. Perhaps there is a sort of a, I know this may be unsatisfying, but a, a mystery part to that that we, that we do need to hold on to and that it will be good to hold on to, especially in the face of reductionism. When it comes to answering the question, what does it mean to be a human? I think it's important for us not to have a, a function-based definition. You know, only a human being can uh, um, play chess. Well, no. Um, only a human being can drive a car. Well, uh, about that. Um, only a human being can compose music. Well, no. Right? Can you see? We, we, uh, if we have a function-based definition, we're going to run into problems because we'll always find some, <laughs> some technology that's able to do that too. And we'll probably also always find some human being who, for whatever reason, is not able to do that. Does that make them any less human? So we can't have a function-based definition of being a human being. Also not a packaging-based definition, you know, that looks like, sounds like, walks like, talks like, feels like definition. Yeah, because remember, is, is a simulation the real thing? And so even language that we use, it's, I think it's important with regard to um, our language, uh, uh, with regard to humans, and our language with regard to, to AI, um, I think it's important that we um, think carefully about the way we use our language. So with regard to humans, I think we do need to have some word for that something that makes humans unique and valuable and that we cannot lose no matter what we do and no matter what somebody else does to us, whatever, you know, whatever we've done to. Something that we have irrespective of capacity or behavior. So maybe... Human itself is, is the good word, or I suppose in, uh, in some circles you can say image of God. Okay, so we need to be careful. I, I would be careful with language like um, losing our humanity or um, dehumanizing someone. You know, we can try, but what if it's something we're actually not able to do at the core? Why? Because the image of God cannot be destroyed in a human being. So we need to find that something. And then with regard to AI, also that we don't anthropomorphize too easily. So this idea of self-learning or self-driving, why do we use that language? There's no self there, right? So we should say something like a driverless car, not a self-driving car. Um, we talk about smart devices. No, they're not. 
Okay, the people who made them are smart. The devices themselves are not. So we need to um, we need to keep a robust sen uh, sense of the self. One very good suggestion I've uh, uh, I've seen is uh, when, for example, a chatbot uh, shouldn't be allowed, or any any bot, any AI shouldn't be allowed to say I or we, talking about itself and us, to, uh, human beings together. So there needs to be a a different pronoun. Maybe it can be a clumsy pronoun. Okay, just to show this, this isn't human. There's a difference. Okay, and again, that wouldn't be difficult to implement. And that uh, would be a great step towards us always being aware who or what we are talking to and, and not confusing or not, not having masked from us whether we're talking to a bot or a human being. Um, I think also in this identity space, to me, you know, I suppose from a, uh, from a Christian conviction, I, I, I do see a great opportunity there. For, for some great conversations to have because we're going to have a lot of identity conversations. I've just put a few out there. You probably have others. Okay, you can see how um, the current AI developments are going to are uh, basically raising very, very important questions about our human identity. And I think we have something to offer into that conversation. And to me, this is a, this is a great opportunity. Here is one potential offer. I could, uh, I'm sure we could offer many others. If you just skim read, um, you, well, let me read a little bit. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. There's a most amazing identity that's being uh, described here, a very deeply valuable identity. But can you see it's also, it's a derived identity. Okay, it's not a self-made identity. It's a, it's a given. It's a God-given identity. Where will you derive your identity from? So in the biblical storyline, we are made in God's image. So we in some ways reflect some, some of who God is. We are not God, but we, do, we are made in his image. And then we in turn make AI. And in some ways, AI reflects who we are. And I think we need to be careful that we don't turn that arrow around and start uh, being taken into being created in the image of something that, uh, that we ourselves created. So where will you derive your identity from? In whose image are you being formed? Know who you are, know whose you are. In some ways, where I started and the title I started with is perhaps there's something that can probably be improved about the title slightly. Because, um, you know, is it an AI world? Ultimately, if that storyline that I gave happens to be true, well, then it's, it's, it's God's world. It doesn't change that. It's his story. The story doesn't get derailed. God isn't surprised at what's happening. Okay, so whenever we, what, however we engage with AI, this is the, the context in which we find ourselves. And, um, yeah, that is, that is who we are. If I may, I would just like to do a brief experiment in closing, which is this. So at Labrie, three times a week, we have a, a sort of a morning chapel thing, and we go through a little bit of a liturgy, and part of that liturgy is, uh, is something about thanksgiving. And one thing that really struck me about that, uh, that litany is um, how the things that we thank God for in it are actually, it's, it's, a, 
it's an appreciation, a thankfulness for our humanity, for what it means for us to be human beings, for our dominion, identity, relationships. And I was wondering if we can just go through that together as a, as a closing. And as we go through it, just think in terms of AI, you know, what are you, you may be involved in AI, you may use uh, AI, you may be wondering about AI, you may be excited about it, you may be fearful about it, but just think about AI and how this may help us in terms of um, evaluating and making good decisions in terms of our engagement with AI. Okay, how does each of these things in the litany, uh, um, where, does, where does AI help us? Where does AI actually rather not help us? Where is it relatively irrelevant? Do you get this? So it's, um, <laughs> the experiment is to use that in some ways as a model or as a, as a decision-making guide to help us guide our interaction with AI. So shall we try that together? I'm hoping that it's still readable at the, um, at the back. Um, you know the, the drill, the bold is, uh, is your part. Let us give thanks to God our Father for all his gifts so freely given to us, for the beauty and wonder of your creation and earth and sky and sea. We thank you, Lord. For all that is gracious in the lives of men and women, revealing the image of Christ. We thank you, Lord. For our daily food and drink, our homes and families and our friends. We thank you, Lord. For minds to think and hearts to love and hands to serve. We thank you, Lord. For health and strength to work and leisure for rest and play. We thank you, Lord. For the brave and courageous who are patient in suffering and faithful in adversity. We thank you, Lord. For all valiant seekers after truth and liberty and justice. We thank you, Lord. For the fellowship of believers in all times and places. We thank you, Lord. Above all, we give you thanks for everything we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be the praise and glory with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. I'm not sure if this was a world first trying to use a piece of liturgy as a, as a discernment tool for our engagement with AI, but if it was a world first, well, you know, this is Libri, we're cutting edge like that. Um, thank you.
that we shouldn't shy away from it, but actually plunge right in. And I guess the question I would ask you to, um, to help me with is when, when I encounter uh, just real loneliness in people and re a real vacuum of sort of it's, it, it, they aren't getting enough. Um, my friends of mine or people that I come into contact with, w there's a longing for something more, and that's a very human longing. And AI, in some ways, is meeting something that isn't being met. And how do I have conversations around that? The brokenness of, um, of, of us not being able to meet each other's deep needs, and so we keep looking. How do I have conversations? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. What you what you will, I think, also what, one of the things we will increasingly find is the is this statement of um, you know, it's it's better than nothing. Yes, I know mm -hmm. this AI is not a human being, mm -hmm. but it's better than nothing. Yeah. And how do we, how do we, how do we gently press against that? So mm -hmm. I. I would affirm some of that. Yes, it is better than nothing. But the trouble is that the moment then I, the moment I go there, then again I might be missing those opportunities that may still present themselves to mm. me tomorrow. Okay, so, so it's a it's a difficult line to walk. Right? Mm. I mean, I, so my encouragement would be, you know, are you really, are there, <laughs> not. Are the human things to be able to do? Have we really explored all those opportunities? Right. Um, I suppose the, <laughs> the difficult part about this is if I'm having that conversation, well then that kind of means I'm already, I'm part of that opportunity for right. that person, right? So mm. places a, uh, I think also places a responsibility, relational responsibility on me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I would certainly try and sort of explore, um, you know, all human avenues first. Mm. Yeah, I which know is I'm a very relational answer, but I it, think it that's has to be. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then, um, I mean, if if it is possible in that conversation to to, to bring God into uh, mm -hmm. to God into the well, God is in the picture, but to look upwards, mm -hmm. okay, um, then I think that should also that that should count for something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The thing that I, I was left with, thank you for a very good presentation, by the way, it got me really thinking, uh, was um, it seems to be like almost an assault on truth. The God is truth is one of his things he says about himself. <laughs> and um, I think right from the beginning, Satan's got an agenda, which is the opposite of that. Um, Jesus said he is alive from the beginning, his very nature is denied. So he has always the opposite agenda from God. And it, it seems to me that whereas perhaps in the past people had time to be still and know that he is God and to work up some kind of relationship with him or think about him, etc. That's all been crowded out. And now people are much more likely to spend time on the phone before AI comes along, you know, and look at Google and the, the time for meditating on the Lord is sort of crowded right out. But now, this sort of uh, Google thing has become an interactive thing. 
that's going to draw you into a, almost a relationship, which isn't a God relationship, as you were saying, point the person to a God relationship. You know, but that is sort of, is being pushed out further and further, smaller and smaller than people's thinking and lives. Mm -hmm. and, and it opens up a world that is godless. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's scary what you're mm -hmm. really. Okay. Um, affirm. Uh, I would add, perhaps, that uh, I, I don't think that, you know, the <laughs> we would say, uh, you know, the, the devil's in the technology. Um, <laughs> I don't think the devil owns AI, okay? I, I don't think that's something that, uh, that we need to abdicate to him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, remember, I think the message I was giving is that, in, in many ways, the, the AI does, I mean, it does shape us, yes, but it also brings out who we already are. So, this, the, the old, like, you know, the truth versus lie and, and, and good versus evil, that's not new with AI, and AI just brings it out in a, uh, in a different way. So, I'm not sure if we, um, you know, yes, so, so AI can use, be used both ways. It can be used for truth as well. It can be used for lie. Both, of those, both of those applications are possible. And um, part of our discernment then is how do we use it well and not badly? How do we use it for, for truth and goodness and beauty rather than the opposites? How do, how do we use it to help us engage more fully with reality rather than being able to... Uh, rather than being diminished ourselves and diminished in our access into what is actually real. Does that make sense? So I'm just trying to give that, yeah, us that yeah. as a discernment tool. I don't think it's a blanket yes or no. It's a, it's a more difficult space than that. But isn't it any more difficult? I mean, the, the digital manipulation of photographs, etc. But then you just gave that example of what if Zelensky appears with his voice, his appearance, and says, that oh, we've decided that's enough. So... And how do you discern tr truth yes. from so, fake news? I mean, we've got this fake news problem already, but it seems to be exacerbated by it. Yes, affirm. Yes, and and we need to have <laughs> have our heads switched on yeah. on this, and, and um, we can't be naive about it. Affirm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you for a bringing a lot of thought. Um, like, like Dawn, I find it a little bit overwhelming, this topic, and at times frightening. But um, it was good to hear um, towards the end, like you said, it's a great opportunity for conversation because when we first met, we talked about AI at the table, and I had been reading stuff that came in front of me without looking for them on Google. And I thought, oh, I don't know much about that, and I know more today. But um, I think it's a great opportunity for us, if we know God intimately, to trust him in that. Because I think we haven't had such an opportunity for a long time. Because people in the human world, where we are, especially in more rich countries, I think we have lost that ability to converse like we are now, like we converse at the bridge, to talk about these things. And for the past sort of 20 years, I've worked quite a lot with young people in different settings. And um, young people have always been thirsty to talk. 
But it's true that the technology has come a little bit in the way that they don't maybe converse like we used to when we were younger. But that is a wonderful opportunity because that's linking technology and conversation and that deep need as a human to converse with each other. Because like you said, it will never replace a human conversation. And sadly, we can see more and more, a lot of people are taking their lives today, however, we've got all these wonderful things. It's because it can't replace a human being. And I think, as Christians, if we pray that God will use our humanity, like Jesus did, you know, that we will be Jesus for, for the people that he places around us to talk using that technology conversation, but also our human side, people are always receptive to a listening ear and a compassionate heart. And I've, I've seen it times and time again, when people want to open out because nobody else listens, they'll be feeling loved. And I think we need to learn to re-listen. Yeah. We need to spend more time in retraining our mind to listen to each other, to listen to those painful conversations that sometimes we think, oh, I wish I didn't hear that. But yes, because that's what God has done for us, is listen to our pain. And he's given his life for us. And I think as Christians, or as uh, friends of Christ, you know, um, we, sh we should really embody more Jesus living in us, in this broken world, with so many people, sadly, that are dying an untimely death. Thank you. I think, I hope everybody's heard that. So what you've basically done is you've... Uh You've expanded in a very beautiful way on that on that one point about the relational aspect of our of our humanity. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I have much yeah. to add. I had a, just a thought with uh, if I can just put you can accuse me of spin, Nigel, but just a, an afterthought on yours was okay. So yes, we need to watch out more with deep fakes, but uh, the positive spin of that is well, what if it does enhance our critical thinking? And as such, it actually then means we, we live more into this image of Godness because now we're thinking again in a way that perhaps five years ago we weren't. Just uh, trying, <laughs> trying to find the positive. So, it seems to bring up questions about consciousness. And the, it's funny, on the review that you showed previously beforehand, it referenced a game called Detroit Become Human, which is essentially where... Um, androids of AI become conscious and they no longer want to be slaves and they're actual living conscious creatures and it's like a breaking free of them and it's I feel that will probably go down the same route as that the more that it becomes I mean that is a leap I don't actually know what will happen in the future but people seem to be open to the idea that we could create something so human-like, that it suddenly becomes conscious. Mm. But if you go down that route, why isn't the more simple stuff just immediately conscious? Like, it doesn't really make it any different. And it also brings up ideas about what consciousness is in the first place. And also what, um, you know, what it is to be human. So, you know, it's a... Because I, I was having a discussion with these guys about the fact that, you know, if you are being dogmatic about it, and sometimes we need to be, sometimes we need to really take into consideration what was said in Genesis, which is, you know, you, you have dominion over all the earth, and that basically has a presupposition that you are the most important species, and maybe also that, uh, you know, that
patterns in your pipe and in the AI you've created. And, but it will be very difficult because a human quality such as empathy, which I believe is probably a very good thing, can be overwhelmed with the fact that this is becoming so realistic. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'm, I think I, I don't know exactly where I was going with this. It just popped into my mind, it's not perfectly phrased, but it's, um, I think that's something that will probably come down the route. Um, is there anything you can mention about that? Um, thought fragments. So, uh, Sorry. Um, no, that, that, that's good. The, um, I mean, the, the consciousness thing, on, certainly on the current technology, I mean, zero consciousness, but I think increasingly it'll be able to, to simulate that consciousness better and better. I don't think we'll ever do better, or AI will ever do better than a simulated consciousness. It, it isn't really. I know there's already a guy who lost his job at Google because he's AI is sentient. Um, but it's not. It's clearly not. Um, I suppose one can have that debate of will it ever. Um, one can probably also link that into, uh, I suppose, generally the, um, the uh, one of the scientific debates is what uh, may be called the hard problem of consciousness, where science also struggles to explain. So not, not in AR, but in us, in biology. How does physics and chemistry become neurons and synapses and become consciousness? And, and, and really struggles to go there uh, to such an extent where um, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a very serious discussion to ask, isn't consciousness something supernatural? Okay? And then you bring that back into your AI discussion as well, if you want. It's a very good discussion to have. So, can I, oh, sorry, I'm not attacking you, but um, there's, uh, you know, various philosophers will probably know the, the phrase philosophical zombie, which is that something acts so, uh, can act in a way that makes it seem like it's conscious. But there's nothing going on here. And, I mean, this is a very solipsistic and probably quite nihilistic view, but you could say that about everyone who isn't you. You don't know what anyone else is experiencing. So you can make the assumption that, like, no, it, nothing really matters in that regard. And, you know, you only know you experience that. You could never know whether or not someone else is. And I suppose you might have to make, um, you have to go through a whole load of rabbit holes to actually find an answer to that. Yeah. Um, I've made an assumption that that's not true, but yeah. you know, it, it, it does bring about those questions, and it's, like, yes. it's really important to question You're taking us to very deep philosophical yeah. territory. Maybe not in this, I mean, sometimes it's at a, you know, you, you then said, yes, but I need to make the assumption <laughs> that, uh, that it's not so. So uh, often, I think a lot of life isn't lived at that, you know, very, uh, very detailed philosophical level. But whether you're having the conversation here or having the conversation here, I suppose what I'm saying is it's, it's a good conversation to have. Okay, worldview matters. Uh, um, Storylines matter. And whatever your st story you believe you're a part of. Um, is going to shape how you think about those things. And if we're having those conversations, those are very, very good conversations. And I'm not saying it's an easy conversation. So again, coming from a, you know, coming from a, a Christian conviction, I don't think it's necessarily easy to show how the biblical storyline isn't only a true story, but also is the best story mm -hmm. to be fully human in. But let's, um, let's become better at that. Ingrid, you have something?
we had um, one question from the chat from Caleb, uh, which is about language you talked about. Do you think it would help inflate some of the hype around AI and bring the issues we face into clearer focus if we stop calling it artificial intelligence and instead refer to it as applied statistics, <laughs> algorithmic <laughs> generation, or maybe just automatization? Automation. Thank you so much. Can you just repeat that for the recording? Instead of artificial. Okay, so it's, a, it's about the language. Isn't it's isn't even the word artificial intelligence a little bit too misleading? And shouldn't we call it uh, call it what statistical what mathematics applied computation, statistics. applied statistics, yeah. or whatever, or just algorithmic yeah. computation, whatever. Yeah. Algorithmic generation. Generation. So, <coughs> so yes, I think we're already pulling a stunt by saying intelligence, right? Because intelligence, maybe that is again we we're already anthropomorphizing. Okay, and uh, I suppose another discussion to have then is what is intelligence and can anything, can bits and bytes have intelligence? Um, but yes, I'd, I, I'd go with that. That's probably not a battle we're going to win, right? But I think in terms of some of our other uses of language, perhaps that could be quite inspirational. Guys, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's find a way for, um, <laughs> that describes us uniquely as humans. Or let's not allow AI to call itself I. Something like that. I think those are more... Uh, realistic to achieve. I'm rethinking my use of smartphone. So <laughs> the terminology for smartphone. Smartphone. Yeah. Yes. Just what you were saying and what you were saying then and the question just made me think maybe one of the things problems we have is that people who are developing all this stuff are Darwinian materialists and they're therefore reductionists. That's part of why I don't trust them to know this stuff. They don't know what a human being is, they're, they're reductionists. But maybe that's a saving grace in that they equate consciousness, intelligence with mere complexity and reduce it to complexity. Mm -hmm. So someone like Richard Dawkins will say, all these questions about why and meaning and where does, that's all just, that's all sort of a byproduct of complexity. When you get as, when you become as complex as a human being, then apparently, just these other things spill out as a byproduct, but they don't mean anything. These yearnings for creator or love, love to really mean something beyond just survival, whatever it is, you know. So that these Darwinians will say that, you know, that the things that that seem to make us uniquely human, they're just what happens when you when you reach a certain level of complexity. So they seem to equate consciousness with mere complexity, really reduce it to that. And so I, I think that's something that, again, like I said, I, I don't really trust them because of that, but maybe, maybe that's also a relief because they don't really, they're not really as, con these, these things they're developing aren't as much of a threat as they might sound because consciousness is more mysterious, it's bigger than just complexity, and all we can do is make something complex, more complex. Yeah. So you, you don't have to trust them, but we can still have a conversation, right? And again, so, so this, uh, and, and this conversation in your case would then be how, how some of those uh, uh, higher levels of complexity can't just be emergent properties from, from the base. Right. And um, you can even take that down to the level of even, even just information. You know, uh, um, you know, sh show how, how can matter lead to information. I'm not even, I, I don't even, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't even think we've shown that. So even no. at this stage, information is still very much a good candidate to be something supernatural, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, some accounted um, for, I believe. And right. um, never mind uh, sentience, consciousness, etc. So, uh, yeah, that's a good conversation to have. Does it really, um, you know, does a, I don't know, does, does an I have a dream speech pop out of swirling around letters of the alphabet? Yeah. And yeah. Can, you, can you explain the fullness of what's happening in that speech by talking about the ink and the paper mm-hmm. on which it's written? Okay, it's, uh, if, you can, you can, if you really want to be reductionistic like that, you know, knock yourself out. But notice how you're missing so much of reality when you do that. Okay, so if you're looking at, okay, I just picked on one profound speech, and you just go ink paper or letters of alphabet. Um, you can, so, so here's the catch, right? You can, you can offer a complete explanation of it at that, complete, at that level. Okay, there's no, no part of the speech that you can't explain with letters of the alphabet. But you're still missing so much of, you're missing all the, the meaning levels, the impact levels, the, the human levels, the relationship levels. The, you're missing all of that by, by reducing it and saying that is all that it is. Okay? So is the speech a collection? Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. Okay? Just a collection of letters? Yes. Is it nothing but a collection of letters? No, it's more than that. Did that pop out as an emergent property of that? No. One last comment or question, William. Um, we have a comment. Computers unveiled a new computer, which is an AV, AVR augmented reality or something. So you wrap it around your head, mm. and it's got sound and video. But it allows you to interact with people because they can see people. So you can actually see your emails, communicate with a film, listen to music, at the same time talk to somebody, mm-hmm. or have two people talking and you're talking to someone in real life. So that reminds me of this film called Ready Player One. I don't know if you've seen it. But the solution of that film was amazing because all it is is right now we're all interacting in different ways. But can we not just stop and interact with human beings from an adult computer so that we can reconnect once again before we then go back to um, all this computer stuff. Because there's so many people out there, I have a work colleague who is building block or foundations of building block who are missing or are missing because spirit events happen. Mm-hmm. Now something happens and it's very difficult for him to understand that because he hasn't had that build up of knowledge <laughs> in order to be able to translate what's going on. And so the solution he comes up with can be frightening. And there's so many people out there that who don't have the background to analyze and deal with what they're experiencing, and yet they feel compelled and strong enough to impose that on other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, should we not get too lost in virtual or augmented reality? Affirmed. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Uh, the the challenge will be that these things will probably that um, offer us what they will say is a larger reality. And I think the challenge will be to, to recognize it for what it is and for what it isn't. And for what it leaves behind. Thank you. Thank you so much, Torsten. That was very, very helpful.